Hello friends and welcome. We are here. Uh, welcome to our SPT Sutra Studies class. My name is Venerable Tarpa. Before we begin our class, let's take a moment to appreciate our handsome community gathered here today. Today I feel I feel fortunate to sit as a member of this kind community in the safety and security of like-minded friends, sharing this present moment with others dedicated to the cultivation of goodness. Today, I'm grateful for the direction and support that this community provides, a community worthy of my time and commitment, a community where my efforts have meaning, purpose, and are appreciated. Today, I'm thankful for this community of awakening, a place to gain the knowledge and skills to improve my life a family, a home, and a sanctuary for all of us seeking refuge from the storm. And let's remember, as conscientious practitioners, we must recognize our responsibility to the world, to strive to live skillfully while helping others to do the same, to strive to live in balance and harmony with nature and others, to strive to gain mastery over our minds and embody our true benevolent nature, to expand our hearts and minds, transcending our shared human limitations, to not intentionally harm sentient life or our planet, and to maturely accept and embrace the reality of our situation while striving to improve it. Thank you. Okay, so again, welcome to our SBT Sutra Studies class. We are currently examining the Dharmapada, and today we are in an epic chapter covering, it is chapter 22, and it is entitled, Hell. Yeah. Oh, I'm just being silly. I figured Pasan would be here first for that one, for his favorite song. Um, we have some readers here today, which is just wonderful. Hello, Rinchen. Thank you for coming back. We got our readers on track. I feel lost, completely lost. Where am I? Oh, here we go. Okay, so this is a, a bit of an unusual chapter, especially for a secular Buddhist group. Um, but um, I think it's also uh, gives us a chance to touch on some things maybe we haven't talked about before. Before we get into reading about this chapter, and this chapter really is about the Hell Realms, so I wanted to give us a little bit of information uh, coming into it, and that is, uh, let's see if I can find this here, um, oh here we go, I wanted to talk a bit about what the uh, Hell Realms actually are in Buddhism, so in Buddhism we have three samsaric realms. Now this is traditional Buddhism, traditional Buddhism, Buddhist cosmetology. Uh, and um, the, uh, all of the various Buddhist traditions all uh, buy into this idea of the three realms of samsara. Uh, and so uh, now remember, th these are the three realms inside samsara. Outside of samsara is enlightened existence. So these are within samsara. And there's three. Formless realm is at the, at, at the peak. We have the form realm underneath that. And then we have the desire realms. The desire realms are six. And they are starting at the bottom. We have the hell realms. We have the ghost realms. Number five, number four is the animal realm. Three is the human realm. Two is the demigod or jealous god realm, and one is the god realm or the deva realm. Um, when we talk about the form and formless states, these are first and foremost meditative states. So um, these are the peak of calm abiding meditation, or what they call jhana meditations. These are the, the, the peak attainments of the jhana meditations. The first attainment is the form realm. And so in this realm, uh, meditators are deep in meditation, and, uh, but yet they meditate on and take pleasure in uh, sense of mental sensory objects, right? So which means that they're still in the realm of, of thought, 
or beyond thought, but the mind is still active. They're taking the pleasures of meditation and things like that. The formless realm doesn't, doesn't refer to them not having physical form. It refers to their object of meditation. In the formless realm, let me see if I get this absolutely correct. I want to look at my notes. In the formless realm, um, uh, all the sense objects, uh, including sight, sounds, taste, smell, and this also includes the five sense organs, are arrested or suspended within meditation. And beings abide in a single pointed meditation without distraction. <clears throat> and for some of you who have read the Heart Sutra, this is very much in, in line with the experience that the Heart Sutra points at, that this is a deep, uh, dreamless, uh, it's like a deep, dreamless uh, state of sleep. Uh, all the senses have been abandoned. Where the form realm, uh, the, the practitioner partakes in the pleasure of internal contemplation. So there's still, there's a mental, mental pleasure going on in that one. And so these are the three realms. Now, the six realms of desire are asserted as the realms that we're born into. And um, depending on one's karmic propensity, a person could take birth in any one of these realms. They talk about the three higher and three lower realms. So the three lower realms, uh, starting at the bottom of, of hell, uh, ghosts, and animal realm, are considered unfavorable rebirths uh, in which there's a lot of suffering. And then the three, the three higher realms of human, jealous God, and God are considered favorable. Generally, in Buddhism, they talk about human existence as being the, the, the most favorable because the human realm is the only realm that we can, uh, that has the proper balance of pain and of, of suffering and happiness. And in that way, uh, it's, the, it's the, the only realm where we can achieve enlightenment. The God, the God realms, the Deva realms, Though they might be pleasurable and wonderful, uh, we, you don't have the ability to achieve enlightenment in those realms. So, uh, but today we're talking about the hell realms. So let me give you the textbook presentation of the hell realms. So the hell realms is the home of the hell beings. Beings who, because of their past negative karma, are horribly and continuously tortured Within the Buddhist hell realm, there are eight hot and eight cold hells, often imagined as existing deep below the surface of the earth. Um, type of suffering uh, in these is the suffering of the hell realms are depicted as a myriad of strange and horrible depictions of recurring physical and mental torture. How wonderful is that? Uh, so, um, Now, out of those hells, there's a special hell that's in Tantric Buddhism. So the, the first hells I talked about, those are in all the various traditions. But Tantric Buddhism has a special hell for bad monks and bad practitioners who, who tell their Tantric secrets to people. You take pledges to never uh, share your Tantric secrets to anyone. I went to a Tantric university. I had to take all the pledges pledges to not divulge what I learned there. I learned, I have the highest empowerments in all the tantras, and I learned all the secrets, and I have to take them with me to the grave. But there's a special place for those people that don't, and they call it Vajra hell, or Avicii hell. And it's the lowest of the eight hot hells, and is sometimes translated as the hell of unrelenting pain or the hell of ultimate torments. And one who breaks their vows in, in Tantra, vows are called Samaya. And you have this, uh, this, this vow or pledge of Samaya that you will, will not share with the unanointed any of the teachings of Tantra. Um, 
And so that's the traditional kind of layout of these of these different realms and the hell realms. Uh, traditionally, teachers hold these realms and their corresponding types of inhabitants as real. <clears throat> Whereas many progressive teachers assert the six desire realms as mere metaphor uh, that exemplify different distinct states of consciousness or environments within our present world, meaning that the hell realm is to be born into this world, but to, to be born in a miserable existence. Some kind of terribly poor family, maybe you, you're born into a, a, a country that's at war, maybe you're born into a prison system, things like that. And the God realm would be like, like Bezos for Amazon or these people that have just born into luxury. So many people see it like that as more metaphor for this world. Um, according to Zongshir Kensi Rinpoche, who's a very popular modern uh, Tibetan Buddhist, he claims that no Mahayana tradition believes the six realms to be physical places. And he's one of the only ones that I've heard say that, but it's interesting to know that. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, in many teachings, uh, many teachings that I was at myself, he said that it's up to the student, the student's discretion, whether to take the six realms as actual, real, or metaphor. So I wanted to talk about that before we started. That gives you a little bit of understanding of the uh, of the uh, hell realms and how they're perceived in Tibetan Buddhism. Okay, let's get on to some reading. And we've got our readers here. Good. All right. And Susan, would you like to, uh, Karma, would you like to, I was calling you Pema last week. Now I'm going to call you Susan this week, Karma. I don't know what's wrong with you. Can you read 306 for us? It's not it's not on the screen. My fault. Sorry about that. I called it up, but I didn't share it. Here we go. There it is. 306. One who tells lies will go to hell, as well as the one who denies this wrongful action. Both suffer equally after death, for both commit actions which bring them degradation. Thank you. Neil, would you like to read through six? The liar goes into a state of woe. Also he who, having done wrong, says, I did not do it. Men are base actions both. On departing, they share the same destiny in the other world. Thank you so much. And Jennifer, 306. Those who assert what is not true go to hell, as do those who deny what they've done. Both these people of base deeds become equal after death in the world beyond. Thank you. I was going to share this till the end, but I think it's prudent to say it now. So, um, uh, me, my, uh, myself, I don't have a belief in hell. And you know, many scholars, many modern scholars will talk about that within the, when you read the sutras, there's a, there's a few voices that seem quite apparent. And often they'll talk about, there's almost like three distinct voices that run through the sutras. And I guess they're implying that there, there could be quite possibly three strong authors throughout it. Uh, Buddha Gosa being one, the, basically the founder of the Theravada school and the Buddha being the second. Um, and the reason I bring it up now is that, especially this first verse, the language and style is so out of context with the rest of Buddhism. And, uh, and I'm really kind of uh, surprised by it. Maybe, uh, maybe it was meant for simple people, but this idea that, uh, that simply telling a lie uh, guarantees you to go to hell really goes against the the uh, idea, at least the modern idea of karma, 
that uh, karma isn't a set of of uh, of rules that you know you uh, you murder someone you go to hell. There's so much more involved in it. Um, here, it's not the question of a, of the lie, but of course the intention behind it. We've we've talked about this before that it's our intentions, not our actions, that truly uh, asserts our merit within the things we do. That's where our merits lie. So in here, to tell the truth, you go to hell. It's just so basic and in, in so many ways just wrong. We'd have to ask, well, why are you telling a lie? Were you telling a lie to save someone's life? Um, and then the fact that karma is just being a checklist, that, uh, that you did these things you do and you go to hell. It's really not like that. It, uh, karma is so much about the way we feel about ourselves, right? It, it's about uh, the emotional residue that's left over from actions. And then the idea that, of course, uh, there's ways of purifying our, our karma. So um, this first, first verse out of all of them strikes me, the, the, uh, if I find to be the strangest. And it just does not sound like the writings of the Buddha. I can't, I can't imagine him writing something that's just so binary and so fixed. It, it seems to lack any kind of wisdom or the idea to deny something that you've done that, that I've never read anywhere that that's a, a, a downfall. It's not part of the monk vows. Uh, the monk vows we have uh, to not tell a lie, but we also have a sojourn ceremony, a purification ceremony twice a month. So we purify these these uh, things so we don't, we don't go to hell. So... Uh, I hope that sets up the rest of these for everybody. So yeah, that first one just, I would have great trouble accepting that, that notion. Now, if you spend a lifetime of dishonesty, or spend a lifetime of lying for your, uh, to, to, to serve yourself and, and that harms others. Now that's another story, right? Um, Neil, would you like to read 307? Those who wrap themselves in saffron robes but stay un regenerate regenerated and unrestrained will be born in hell by the force of their corruption. I'm guessing unregenerate is uh, unpurified, which means they don't confess their their fault. Karma, would you like to read 307? There are many evil characters and uncontrolled men wearing the saffron robe. These wicked men will be born in states of woe because of their evil deeds. And I'm not one of them, I promise. Miss Jennifer, 307. Many who wear the saffron robe have evil traits and lack restraint. By their evil deeds are these wicked people reborn in hell. And as far as there being wicked uh, wicked monks and nuns, of course there are. There's wicked people in every every type of, of, of work in the world. And so uh, hopefully there's not many, but there's an awful lot of really great monks out there. So don't worry, folks. Jennifer, would you like to read 308? Better to swallow a red-hot ball of iron flickering with tongues of fire than for one who is immoral and unrestrained to live on the charity of others. Yeah, I would, I would go along with that one too, yeah. That's... And Neil 308. It would be better to swallow a red hot iron ball blazing like fire than as an immoral and uncontrolled monk to eat the arms of the people. Thank you. And karma, 308. Better to eat the flaming red hot iron ball than to be an immoral and unrestrained person feeding on the alms food of the people. Thank you. And I'll, I'll add some modern tech context to this. And maybe we could, we could translate it as better eat a flaming hot chicken wing than it is to with lots of extra hot sauce on it. And, and what they're talking about here is a, a monk who's pretending to be a good monk 
and, and taking food from good people that are offering it to them. And we have 309 karma. Would you like to read this one? For one who is heedless and joins with another spouse, four things will come to pass. The loss of merit, uneasy sleep, self-degradation, and lifetimes in hell. And could you read 310 as well? Who will risk loss of merit, gain of sin, and punishment from the law to join with another spouse for some frightened pleasure in fearful arms? Thank you. Jennifer, would you like to read 309 and 310? Four misfortunes befall the reckless man who consorts with another's wife. Acquisition of, of demerit, disturbed sleep, ill repute, and rebirth in states of woe. Such a man acquires demerit and an unhappy birth in the future. Brief is the pleasure of the frightened man and woman, and the king imposes heavy punishment. Hence, let no man consort with another's wife. Isn't it interesting that Uddharakita uh, uses the word state of woe, place of woe instead of hell? Interesting. And Neil, would you like to read? 309 and 310. All results come to the careless person who consorts with the spouse of another, demerit, disturbs sleep, disgrace, and hell. For the frightened pair, pair delight is brief, and then comes demerit, rebirth in an evil state, a harsh punishment from the king. Therefore, a person should not consort with another spouse. Thank you. I was, uh, I was a bit surprised to run across this verse because the Buddha doesn't seem to talk very much about sexuality, where it seems like religions are all infatuated with sexuality. The Buddha, you know, he has his vows. We have monks are celibate, of course, and he has lay people to not engage in... Um, in harmful sexuality or to practice wholesome sexuality. But generally Buddhism doesn't get into the nitty gritties of it all. Where here, uh, they do talk about it here. I thought that was interesting. Neil, would you like to read these three? 311, 312, and 313. A blade of grass wrongly handled will cut the hand. The religious life wrongly lived leads to hell. When your actions are careless, when your spiritual practice is lax, when your purity of life is breached, your spiritual practice will bear no great fruit. Put all your energy behind whatever you set out to do. The seeker who is slack and unconcerned is like dust turning in the wind. Thank you. Jennifer, would you like to read 211, 212, and 213? Just as Kusa grass, wrongly handled, cuts the hand, even so a recluse life, wrongly lived, drags one to states of woe. Any loose acts, any corrupt observances, any life of questionable celibacy, none of these bear much fruit. If anything is to be done, let one do it with sustained vigor. A lax monastic life stirs up the dust of passions all the more. Thank you. And Karma 211, 212, and 213. Just as Kusa grass cuts the hand that wrongly grasps it, so the renunciant life of wrongly grasped drags one down to hell. A lax act, corrupt practice, or chest life lived dubiously doesn't bear much fruit with steady effort one should do what is to be done because the lax renunciant stirs up even more dust thank you and they talk of i think they talked about what dust is here uh figuratively refers to greed hatred and delusion the three poisons right yeah so uh, the first one here, Kuso grass, that's a spiritual grass. 
I, I guess you could call it a spiritual grass, but it, it's used a lot in the sutras. It's a long, fluffy grass. They uh, they used it to make a little a little uh, meditation mat for the Buddha. They would always put kusho grass down. And in tantric ceremonies, they actually have kusho grass, and you're supposed to put a little under your mattress to give you uh, uh, spiritual dreams. And I don't think it ever worked. That I can't think of any of the people that I did need, that I knew that went through empowerments that they they actually had uh, spiritual dreams from the kusho grass. But uh, it can be a thicker kind of uh, grass. So you can imagine getting a paper cut from it. Um, and then the other thing that this talks about, they keep mentioning renunciants, but we can always talk about not monks, but just good practitioners, that they often have a, a higher rate of punishment for good practitioners who go bad, right? So regular folks who live in, in ignorance and they, they might do a lot of wrongdoing but don't know the difference, of course, they would still uh, have some results and repercussions. But for someone who's a practitioner knows the difference, then there's especially bad hell that comes from that. So that's what they're usually talking about here. And Jennifer, would you like to read 314? Leave undone all wrongful action misconduct leads to tor later torment. Better do something good from such actions you will never suffer. Thank you. Neil 214. An evil deed is better left undone, for a deed torments one afterwards, but a good deed is better done during which one repents, not later. Oh, that's some strange wording, isn't it? In karma, three fourteen. The foul deed is best not done. The foul deed torments one later. A good deed is best done. For having done it, one has no regret. <laughs> the wording's not much better than that either. And of course, uh, you know, this comes back to that beautiful Buddhist adage. Do no evil, do only good, purify your mind. So that's that that verse is not new to us. And uh Neil, would you like to read 315? Just as a garrison on the frontier is guarded well, both inside and out, guard yourself and never be slack. Don't let even an insistent pass for one in lacks one lacks moment are found hell and repentance spooky stuff jennifer 215 just as a border city is closely guarded both within and without even so guard yourself do not let slip this opportunity for spiritual growth for those who let slip this opportunity, grieve indeed when cons when consigned to hell. Thank you. Karma, 315. Just as a fortified city is guarded inside and out, so guard yourself. Don't let a moment pass you by. Those who let the moment pass by grieve when they are consigned to hell. And we have we have four last ones that we'll read together. Karma, would you like to read these four? Ashamed of what is not shameful, unashamed of what brings shame, those caught up in such falsehoods will pass to the lower realms. Fearful of what is not frightful, unafraid of what is to be feared, those caught up in such falsehoods will pass to the lower realms. Seeing nothing wrong in wrong action, viewing what is right as a fault. Those caught up in such falsehoods will pass to the lower realms. Those who know right as right and know the wrong to be wrong ascend to happy states of being for they, are hold, for they hold right views. Thank you. Jennifer, would you like to read the last four here? 
Put 16 around. Those who are ashamed of what they should not be ashamed of and are not ashamed of what they should be ashamed of, upholding false views, they go to states of woe. Those who see something to fear where there is nothing to fear and see nothing to fear where there is something to fear, upholding false views, they go to states of woe. Those who imagine evil where there is none and do not see evil where it is, upholding false views, they go to states of woe. Those who discern the wrong as wrong and the right as right, upholding right views, they go to realms of bliss. Beautifully done. And Carla, would you like to finish us off through 16, 17, 18, and 19? Ashamed of what is not shameful and not ashamed of what is, those who take up wrong views go to a bad rebirth. Seeing danger in what's not dangerous and not seeing danger in what is, those who take up wrong views go to a bad rebirth. Finding fault in what is not at fault and seeing no fault in what is, those who take up wrong views go to a bad rebirth. But not knowing fault as fault and the faultless as the faultless, those who take up right views go to a good rebirth. Thank you. I found this, uh, these last four were kind of perplexing. And the first line being the most interesting, ashamed of what's not shameful. That's a reason to go to hell, isn't that kind of strange? I thought maybe it was just a poetic license because the way the other verses, they're kind of doing opposites. But even the second one, seeing danger in what's not dangerous. Do you see that as a reason to go to hell? finding fault in what's not at fault. Now that could be the judgmental thing where you're accusing people of things, but I found those to be kind of strange unless I'm missing something. But basically these last verses come back to the, the, uh, the Buddhist, one of the Buddhist most important things he wanted to teach. He wanted to teach people the difference between right and wrong. He was certain that one of the problems with people is they didn't know the real difference between right and wrong. They didn't know what virtue was. They didn't know what actual goodness is. In the Buddha's words, they didn't know what's to be abandoned and what's to be uh, cultivated. And so that's what these last three kind of point to. And of course, the last one is a little pep talk by knowing fault is fault and the faultless as the faultless, those who take up right views go to a good rebirth. Understanding what's to be cultivated and what's, on, what's to be abandoned is an aspect of right view, and that leads us all to rebirth. Isn't that fascinating? So I feel like I have a lot to say about this chapter. Would anybody else like to ask any questions about it? Are there any? Thoughts or comments? I'm going to take this off the screen for a second. David, let's see what it, you got to say. Yeah, it just, uh, a lot of it just reminded me of uh, the Christianity that I was brought up with, heaven and hell, and the, the main, most minor fault could get you burning in hell for all, all eternity, just to frighten, to frighten the kids, basically. So, a lot of well it. Said. Yeah. I can't argue with that. Anybody else? Yeah, Carmen? I was just thinking with those last four um, that it kind of could mean like to not be like racist or like speciesism, speci I can say the word, basically seeing like be fearing something that isn't actually fearful just because you judge it by how it seems, I guess. Yeah, that's a very good interpretation. Yeah, they are a bit encrypted, aren't they? Cryptic. We're all having problems with our vocabulary today. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, one interesting thing is that different teachers present uh, the idea of things like the hell realms quite differently. In my own tradition, Tibetan Buddhism, there's a, there's a great example, and it's the teachings of, uh, of uh, Lama Zopa, who's in charge of the FPMT organization, one of the largest uh, uh, Geluk uh, schools of Buddhism in the world. 
and very popular teacher, probably many of you know him, and, uh, and uh, opposed to the Dalai Lama's teachings. So Lama Zopa is old school Buddhist. And he talks about, he says things like, if you knew how close you were to going to hell, you would practice like your hair is on fire night and day. And he would talk about how all the realms are below Bodhgaya in India. They all exist, really old school. And then it seems that the Dalai Lama talks to that specifically. And he'll say things like, don't let any guru make you fearful of hell realms. It seems like he, he purposefully speaks against a lot of these things that Lama Zopa does, oftentimes in the same places that they might be teaching. And so um, I, I, I think the, uh, the Dalai Lama doesn't, doesn't uh, care for this kind of uh, spirituality. And of course, I don't either. I, 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 could, I always had a problem with the FPT uh, view of Buddhism. Uh, they would talk about, you know, actually seeing these mystical, mythical creatures and things around. And Lama Zopo talk about seeing Naga people all, all around, which is a cross between a man and a serpent. And they're mystical beings with magical powers and, and things like that. So from a secular point of view, um, you know, we're, we're quite at the other end of the spectrum from FPMT. And I think the Dalai Lama is on a very secular side as well. Uh, Sampo or Sambo? Sorry, I had the problem with the mouse. No, <clears throat> um, it's interesting that what David was saying about religion, it's certainly what I pick up as well, you know, from Christianity, the, the heaven held a bit. But for me, it seems to be hell is often used as a form of control, form of moral control. You know, if you don't actually follow what we are telling you to do, you're going to go to hell or there's a risk that you'll go to hell. And it's almost hearing some of, you know, what's in the Dharmapada, you know, is, is that more organised religion side of Buddhism where you've got that hell, if you don't do these things, this is what happens if you don't stick to your practice. You know, and, and I think obviously we moved on from that. It's nice to see the Dalai Lama's view on it um, because that is a more progressive um, way of, you know, looking at things. Um, and I, th I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well said, Sampo. And, um, and I think uh, in, in my years in the monastery, it's equally true. It was clear to me that the Lamas would use the idea of heaven and hell to control all the monastics. They would, like in like in, in Sunday school, they would use it just when they wanted to make a point. And they would tell monks that if they didn't do these certain practices, you know, for the day's class that they could end up in hell and things like that. But yeah, there, I, I, in my opinion, uh, definitely a source of control, right? Neil? You're muted, Neil. You're muted. Ah. I guess looking at if you don't believe in rebirth, if you don't believe in heaven and hell, it's talking about what will happen to you in this lifetime. Say so if you do something bad, it will sit with you and eat away at you, kind of in your own living hell. Am I right in thinking that? Very much. And if we talk about uh, monumental factors, it will condition your view of the world and you'll create your own hell within this world. Like, uh, you know, you did something wrong and you regret that. Well, that's going to flavor the way you look at the world and your, all your interactions with people. And yeah, and uh, they did say one thing right, that you won't sleep well at night. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anybody else like to share? Does, does anybody else notice that the language or the voice seems a bit different than a lot of the rest of the Dharmapada we've been studying? Uh, it, it, when it, when it, what seems to be uh, things that you, that you feel the Buddha really said, there's a, a lightness and a poeticness to it, right? It, and this is just like, like a school mom pointing down at us. It doesn't seem the Buddha really talked to people like that. And I think originally in, in Buddhism, 
what happens is is that if you don't if you don't liberate yourself from from uh, from samsara, the penalty is you stay in samsara, right? I don't necessarily I don't necessarily think originally there were probably all these different realms. That's a personal opinion, though. Yeah. Maybe he was having a bad day. <laughs> well, some say that uh, you know again other authors slipped in their own thoughts. Buddha Gosa, I'm guessing these are the words of Buddha Gosa. He had a heavier take on Buddhism. He he definitely comes through from a more monastic point of view. And um, and so uh, I think that I think very well it might be his voice here, but it doesn't sound like enlightened uh, enlightened uh, uh, conversation. It's binary. It seems very much trapped in black and white thinking. Mm. It doesn't. It's not based on attention. It's based on action. It just seems in a lot of ways to be flawed. Yeah, I mean that. Quite often, it seemed to me that there was different voices, but this is the the worst one so far, as far as I can use that word. Uh, I mean, I was really a bit shocked by it. Um, but uh, there you go. Yeah, I am too. And um, and again, it's only my opinion that I I I, I don't know if there's different voices in it or not, but it. it uh, it's something interesting. I'm cautious of what I believe in this case. I don't have to believe in it or not. I'm agnostic. It's not yes or no. Certain passages are more cautious about than others. Certain passages are more beneficial than others. I think living my life in fear of hell would not produce a very joyful, very enlightened existence. I think living in my life in the pursuit of benefiting others and myself and awakening there's such a beauty to that. I can't think of any greater motivation. And maybe some people need a heavy motivation like this. Maybe it's the audience. Maybe the Buddha was talking to a specific group of people, a bunch of knuckleheads who did a lot of wrongdoing. Maybe it was an, an AA meeting and he had to make this point clear. <laughs> uh, anyways. I'd like to, uh, since we don't have any more to share, why don't I do a little bit? I don't have a point by point conclusion on this because I didn't find there any point to do so. But I did want to share a couple thoughts. And um, I wanted to talk, I, I mentioned this before and I wanted to mention it again. Uh, I wanted to mention my, uh, my, my own discovery of heavens and hells in Buddhism. So I was coming from a more secular point. I wasn't, when I was younger, I was in my early 20s, I guess. I wasn't, I never didn't consider myself a Christian anymore. I did have remnants of that faith. I, I believed in something spiritual. <clears throat> I don't know if I'd even use the word God, but a universal consciousness of God, spirit, uh, things like that. I had a, a basic belief maybe in heaven and hell. And then getting into Buddhism, um, Buddhism helped me get over that, and I and I started to see the 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 uh, the faults and those kind of thinkings, and I I was able to abandon <clears throat> those thoughts with my belief in some kind of universal consciousness, which now I don't believe could exist, and and also this silly belief in heavens and hells, and then it wasn't until later that all of a sudden, as I got deeper into my studies, that I I found heaven and hell in Buddhism. And I said, hey, wait a second. It took me ages to get over that. And now it's here as well. And nevertheless, there it was. And uh, though a little bit of a different idea, uh, in the Buddhist idea of heavens and hells, you're not there for eternity, though you do live very, very long lives in these places. But there is a karma does eventually spit you out and you're reborn into a different realm. They're not eternal like they are in other faiths. Um, <clears throat> but um, what I found, though, is though, if, if you'd like to read about these these things, you can Google them and read about the hell realms. The descriptions of them <clears throat> were simply so ludicrous that I just couldn't accept it. And what I mean by that is that 
the descriptions almost sound like they're they're like childlike. They're they're like a child draws a, a picture of a hell realm on paper and tells you what it's about. One realm is the hell realm of sharp edged plants. And everywhere you walk, they cut your legs. So you suffer like that. There's another realm where they put a red hot rod through your tongue over and over and over again. But they're just, they're, they're very specific and they're very strange sounding. They wouldn't even make a good horror film. They're just so ludicrous. So I always had a problem with, with them just because of that. That you know, there's nothing believable about these these really strange things. I remember I also had a teacher, a Tibetan Lama, who made a point. And he says, "Well, if this is the hell realms, who are these hell people that are torturing us? How do they fit into the six realms?" And so even the Tibetans had a, a lot of uh, things to say about that. Um, and again, we talked about the the different narrative voices that we that we that seem to be within the sutras. And um, and a great deal of these Hauram things, they all seem to be that different voice. It doesn't sound like it's the words of the Buddha. And then, um, and then of course, when we're talking about this, and we're talking about, of course, karma is the vehicle that allows for such a thing to happen, right? It's our karma uh, that propels us into better or worse uh, rebirths, but from a secular point of view, uh, who wouldn't believe in such a thing? Uh, uh, some would not believe in such a thing. Uh, we talk about karmic results in this lifetime. And I wanted to remind everybody what karma really is. And karma is this momentum of our lives, that the things, our intentions, our thoughts, and the things we do, they carry with them a momentum that moves forward. And, and that momentum is flavored by the, by the type or style of our intentions. When we behave morally, or let's, let's say virtuously, and uh, in, in, in goodness and benevolence, then that momentum has that flavor. And when we behave in bad ways, in selfish ways, in, uh, in non-virtuous ways, the momentum is steered in that direction. And of course, it's always a spectrum between the two, but this is how karma works. Karma is the momentum of our thoughts, our intentions, our choices, our deeds, moving forward in our lives. That's what karma is. That's the best way to understand karma. And so um, <clears throat> as a secular Buddhist, I think a lot of people think that the, the, the thing that makes a secular Buddhist is the belief in rebirth. And I never thought that that was true. Rebirth is a is definitely one of the things we talk about. But for me, as a secular Buddhist, it's much more about these other things: heavens, hells, mystical creatures, deities, magical powers. These are the things that I really have uh, issue with as a secular Buddhist. Um, I often joke and say. Uh, when explaining what secular Buddhism is, I would say that, well, all Buddhists have a few things that we think are just too implausible to accept, you know, whether it's the, the stories in the Sutra of the, of the Buddha talking to serpents that are in charge of water for a town and the serpents are deciding to go to the ocean and, and, and therefore uh, taking all the water away from a town and he has a conversation with them and urges them to stay, or if it's the Buddha being born from his mother's side, and every step he takes, lotus petals appear, and he speaks mantras, or the Buddha going to the heaven realms on a magical staircase to teach his deceased mother in heaven. Uh, we all have aspects that we think are, are stories, and they're not, they're not literal. Uh, and I would say, well, secular Buddhists, it's just that we're different because our list is just a bit longer, right? <laughs> My list is just a bit longer. So those things and heavens and hells and mystical creatures. And, and so um, I think we all kind of uh, can relate to that in one way or another. Um, but again, SBT doesn't teach belief. And uh, if these things are plausible to you, 
you're more than welcome to believe in them. We just share what the Buddha taught. Belief is up to each one of us, right? Okay. Um, and I think that that's all I wanted to talk about. Uh, I'd like to remind everybody that the sutra teachings are meant as practice instructions. So in order to get the greatest benefit, we need to engage fully with them, utilizing the three great objectives of study, contemplation, and meditation. Your work this week is to discover how these teachings apply to your daily life, transforming them from words on a page into living dharma. And in this case, I think the takeaway from this lesson is, is, uh, is the Buddha's first teaching on what is to be abandoned and what is to be cultivated. Knowing the difference between right and wrong. That's the, that's the takeaway here. Uh, next week, we're going to be moving on to chapter 23 of the Dharmapada, uh, entitled The Elephant. And we only have 26 chapters in the Dharmapada, so we're coming close to finishing it. Very exciting. Um, and uh, with that said, why don't we end today's class with our altruistic affirmation. May all be healthy, may all be prosperous, may all be well. May all be present, free of past regret and future worry. May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. May all realize their true nature and the true nature of reality, which is awakening. Thanks everyone for coming. Thanks for our readers for doing such a great job. Thank you, Neil, for your tech support. Remember that the SPT community was created for one purpose, to support you, the practitioner. See everybody tomorrow for our Sunday class. Tomorrow we have a retreat day. So I hope everybody's going to be there. I hope everybody's preparing for the retreat. I know I am. It's going to be great. We have a couple of great teachings tomorrow on no self. So it's going to be a very interesting day. I'll see everybody then. Bye-bye. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.